Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast, where we dive into the world of movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock, and together we're going to tackle real issues, discovering how we can make the world a better place. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Tired of the grocery store? Looking to spice up dinners? HelloFresh delivers delicious ingredients and easy recipes straight to your door. Take $40 off your first box at positiveimpactpodcast.com fresh. You'll be enjoying cooking again in no time. You guys, I'm absolutely thrilled today to have in studio with me, Jonathan Zeidman, the executive director of One to One Movement, which is an incredible organization not only redefining our view on sustainability, but breaking it down, making it easy for people like you and me to implement meaningful, sustainable measures every day. So a teacher at heart, Jonathan slips away from his executive roles as often as possible to go out and actually teach in the community, which is great because he's pretty fun and pretty enjoyable, so I can only imagine how great those presentations are. In addition to his incredible feats in the environmental world, Jonathan is also referred to as the unofficial spokesman for San Diego. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it looks like good to be here. I have to ask, how do you get the title unofficial spokesperson for San Diego? I mean, that's just, that's a pretty impressive title. So I was born and raised here, and I love San Diego. It's my favorite place on earth. I've been lucky enough to travel around the world now professionally and just personally, and I find that pretty much what I end up doing everywhere I go is talking about San Diego and how it's the greatest place on earth. So uh, all my friends have, have started to call me the unofficial San Diego spokesperson. And uh, I've found myself professionally organizing events and educational programs and functions that really just highlight San Diego. It's a pretty amazing place. It's my favorite place on earth. <laughs> now that we've got that covered, can you share with us how you got into sustainability? Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting path, and it really started in social causes, general social causes. As a kid, I spent my weekends at St. Vincent de Paul feeding the homeless. Uh, my mom had the vision to sign me up for, for being there every Sunday and helping the community, and it was something that I really just became obsessed with. Um, I, I was their little spokesperson, and it was all adult volunteers and an eight-year-old running around helping feed people, and, and I loved it. I loved how it made me feel. And I love the community that I built and, and then how I got to go back to school and talk to people about these interesting stories that I'd heard. And that really kind of led my, my growth in social causes and social justice. I, uh, through that experience of multiple years of volunteering at St. Vincent, I became very active in food donation, food waste donation. I was uh, so upset that restaurants would toss their food out. Whereas I'd be spending my weekends in this place where we were just actively trying to feed people that didn't have access to that food. So I had this great idea, which was, why don't we make it easier for restaurants to donate their food? And this was in, you know, in the 80s, right, where there wasn't any good Samaritan legislation that would allow for restaurants to do so. And I actually spoke at city council as a 12-year-old on how restaurants should be able to donate their food to the shelters. And, you know, it was cute and a little show, but really nothing happened. And Fortunately, now that that is a legislation which has passed, but it, it just kind of sparked my interest in, in helping and being involved through high school. I was most actively most actively involved with um, a, with intellectually disabled community. It was a big passion of mine. I spent my lunches um, sitting with with the club and the, the high school 
um, class and, and it was something I really, really got a lot out of personally. I, I felt like it enhanced my life and that really has just built to an appreciation for community and once again, why I love San Diego so much and want to just take care of, of our home. Really, that's all led to a passion for sustainability. But to me, really, a lot of people equate conservation and sustainability with environment, whereas I look at it as a community health issue, right? So looking at homelessness, looking at the intellectually disabled, looking at our natural spaces, to me, is all part of the same conversation, which is sustainability. So um, I obviously do have a really strong environmental twist to it, but uh, I just want to make sure that we live in, in places that are beautiful, clean, green, and safe. Don't we all want that? I just, I have this vision of an eight-year-old you and a 12-year-old you. I mean, obviously you were just destined to be a spokesperson if you were that young and willing to stand up for these causes. That just really resonated with me. Now let's talk about one-to-one movement and some of the issues that you guys help educate people on. So I'd been a nonprofit for about seven years before starting one-to-one movement and primarily in conservation roles, uh, marine wildlife conservation, um, environmental issues, educational programming on conservation specifically. And I noticed that the organizations that both I was a part of and that resonated with me and that I saw very actively in the space, they spoke primarily to their core constituency. Right, people that already cared about those issues. And essentially, they were collecting that group of people and hopefully moving them up the ladder and saying, oh, great, you already use a reusable bottle. Hopefully, you can use a reusable bag or bike to work or eat a little bit more locally or whatever it is we want people to more begin to uphold in their personal daily lives. What those organizations, to me, weren't necessarily doing was speaking to individuals that don't feel a connection with conservation. So in large parts, those messages that these nonprofits were, were building that did speak to the individuals that they felt were part of their movement also could be seen as alienating to people that aren't, right? They can see it as, oh, well, that's going to be too hard or too expensive or only for people in Portland, Oregon, or whatever it may be. And, and they say, well, that's not for me, right? This issue has become politicized, socialized, um, economically driven. And, and what we wanted to do is create a movement that spoke to those people, um, to you know your aunt or coworker or neighbor who you know is a good person, you know cares about their community and their family and their dog and whatever, but they haven't yet built a connection to conservation. And I honestly feel that it's not because they don't care, it's just because they've never really had a conversation which was particularly engaging to them. And, and that's what we aim to build. Um, we felt that the first thing that we needed to do in order to accomplish that was to rebrand sustainability, right? And instead of making people feel as if they're a part of the problem, inspiring them to feel as if they can be a part of the solution. That's the real primary objective at one-to-one movement. And then everything that we have done as an organization is built off of that. So when we talk about water conservation or waste aversion or food system sustainability or alternative transportation and energy, it's really just a function of allowing people to feel as if they can make a positive impact. And that's where one-to-one comes from. You know, instead of saying you have to change everything about your life, there's a direct one-to-one correlation between a positive action and its reaction, and that's a good enough start. I absolutely love that you just broke it down and said making a positive impact, because obviously that's what we're all about here. (laughs) Also, the spin on positivity. It even goes down into the name that you guys did, one-to-one movement. And you touched on your website about 
you know, taking a negative and turning it into a positive and kind of that one-to-one -one correlation. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, a lot of the environmental messaging out there is fairly alarming. It's a little bit accusatory, kind of judgmental, and with due cause. I get it. There are significant issues that are occurring that we need to make change on. We, we don't have a choice. It's not that we want to make change. We have to. That being said, that individual that doesn't feel a connection to conservation is not usually moved by being told that they're killing polar bears, right? Or, you know, creating a Texas-sized floating garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. If you tell that to someone that isn't already engaged on these issues, they're more likely to just walk away and say, that's not for me. I, I don't, those are not the issues that speak to me. So really, we felt the first thing we needed to do is make these issues more inclusive and accessible. And, and that's where the positivity comes into play, right? It's not about telling people that, you know, they're awful and they're, they're you know, they're deforesting the Amazon. It's, it's more, how can these issues become more personally accessible to an individual? And one of the main ways in which we knew we had to do that is to break down this boilerplate definition of sustainability. Right? When we're out there telling people, the way to be sustainable is buy a Prius or put solar panels on your house or shop at Whole Foods. Essentially, what you're telling people is you have to be rich to make a difference. And we wanted to do the exact opposite. So no, no templatizing the process of being sustainable. It's do what works for you right? and find a way in your life within your time and the resources that you have accessible to you to do things that make an, a difference in, in your life. It's so interesting you brought up this complexity around a lot of the measures that we think of when we think about sustainability are very expensive. Recently we interviewed Mayor DeHaan from Prime 5 Homes and they're building these luxury environmentally friendly homes. And one of the challenges he presented was actually to be able to implement these measures in homes, making them completely energy efficient, really sleek, environmental, sexy homes, it, there's a big price tag. So the spin that you put really making it accessible is you know, very inviting and it's very exciting. Can you tell us some of the specific tactics that you make sustainability easy to implement in our everyday lives? So I would say that making conservation more personalized and finding solutions that apply to each individual uh, participant are not only equally as effective as some of those more expensive solutions that we spoke of, but I'd say actually even more so. Let me just use the three examples that I mentioned to you, which is putting solar panels on your house, driving a Prius or Tesla, or shopping at Whole Foods, right? Those are three things that would be commonly associated with sustainability and environmental solutions. But I would say, you know, keeping your lights off, right, and your energy bill low and whatever it is that you need to not use as much coal-driven or natural gas-driven energy would be as effective as having solar panels. I would say riding your bike to work would be even more sustainable than driving a Prius. I would say growing your own food would be more sustainable than shopping at Whole Foods. So all of these solutions have no cost and actually save you money and probably have a greater outcome and, and output than some of those um, causes that are solutions that we associate with the environmental movement. Not to mention, let's be honest, biking to work, and we are in San Diego, so we can do it year round. I realize that's not a possibility in my home state of Idaho, <laughs> but also gardening. 
those are huge quality of life factors. And there's countless studies relating those to improving the quality of your life, improving the happiness. I'm glad you brought that up because I look at conservation as or, or sustainable actions and daily habits as not being a draw on our life, not being these things that are going to take more time and are going to be more difficult and are going to cost more. I see them as being a benefit in our life. So when you just simply look at riding your bike to work, you know, someone might say, well, it's going to take me longer and I'm going to get sweaty and I'm not used to biking on the roads. Whereas the way in which I would look at it is you're much more deeply integrated into your community. When you ride your bike, you notice things that you never would when you're driving. You have an opportunity to stop and chat with people, right? You, you get a workout. So you're looking at all these benefits. I, I would say the same with gardening. You could say, yeah, it would be so much easier to just go to the store and buy my food. But when you're outside gardening, you have this opportunity to be outdoors in this beautiful city. You have this opportunity to grow the foods in the way in which you think are best for you and, and not using products that you think might be harmful for you or your family. You have this opportunity to connect with your neighbors through the abundance that you generate and say, hey, look, I've got this orange tree and there's no way I can eat 500 oranges at the same time. Why don't I share some of these with you? Which I think is really the solution in building communities. Uh, I have to admit, my in-laws are such gardeners. They turn their entire backyard into this massive garden. And it's built on years and years and years of fertilizer. So when they plant a zucchini plant, this thing produces like nothing I've ever seen. And they've built relationships with their neighbors over the years just by dropping off baskets of zucchinis, of spinach, of tomatoes that they're no longer able to eat. What ways have sustainability been a benefit on your life? Are these sustainable measures that you've built into your life? Well, who doesn't love a neighbor that knocks on their door offering beautiful vine-ripened tomatoes or zucchini or fresh herbs, right? It's, it's really a, a great benefit of, uh, of bringing that into to your neighborhood, right, in your community. And I, I look at everything that I do to personally uh, live the life, which, which I think we, we should be, as benefits to my life. I don't see any of them as negative or, or detractors to doing the things that I actually want to do. So for example, just a few that come to the top of my head, um, I'm vegan and have been vegan for many, many, many years. And so many people say that must be so hard and so limiting, but I actually look at it as like, I can eat anything. Whereas previously when, when I wasn't vegan or vegetarian before that, you know, all of my meals were centered around one main protein and like the things I ate were like, all right, I'm gonna eat chicken or a burger or a steak or, and now like I can eat anything. I eat Mexican food, Indian food. I, my, uh, range and my palate has expanded so greatly. And I think that that's a great benefit to my life, not to mention feeling wonderful and, um, obviously being in line with the, the, the ethics that I, uh, embody, but I'd also say, for example, like I don't buy any new clothing. Like everything I wear is from a, a thrift store or vintage store or consignment store. And um, you, you can't see me in Radio Land, but I think I look okay, right? Uh, it's it's definitely not. I, I don't go out there not feeling my best because I don't buy these new clothes. It actually allows for me to kind of shop in a way in which I don't look like everybody else because my clothes just comes from those same three stores that kind of um, fast fashion is, is really kind of promoting nowadays. So in these ways, I think um, I get an opportunity to do the things that I, that, that I feel strongly about, but I also think it brings great benefit to my life. 
I love that. And I do have to say, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the fashion you're sporting right now. <laughs> we'll have to take a photo and throw it on our Instagram account for everyone to see. <laughs> Next, I really want to zoom out and kind of, I know that you're really about bringing these issues down to the individual level and equipping people to bring them into their everyday life. But let's take a step back and say, why are these matters are important? You know, big picture, what are we looking at if we kind of don't start adopting some of these measures? Sustainability, once again, is not specifically an environmental issue. It's a social issue, right? We, there, there are no peer-reviewed scientific articles that are telling us we're doing a pretty good job right now in regards to our use of resources. We're just not. We cannot keep living this way, whether we like it or not. So we have to make these changes. And, and really, the question becomes... Should we do them now and build proactive measures in order to be able to deal with the issues of the future when it comes to you know, water resources or natural resources? Or are we going to do them further down the line when it's reactive and it's more challenging and we've already dealt with the causes of uh, the degradation that we've built? Right? Obviously, environment is a very difficult issue to communicate to the layperson because it's so huge. Right? It's not like... You know, why you should adopt puppies or support veterans' rights or feed homeless. Those issues are, are fairly easy to understand. Here's this issue that needs to be addressed, and here's how we're fixing it. Environment applies to every single thing around us. And really one of the functions that we wanted to serve at one-to-one -one is to break down that kind of that huge definition of environment as something that becomes a little bit too difficult to understand. And, and definitely too difficult to even feel as if you can have an impact on when you're saying there's, you know, billions of people, 350 million in the United States, what's my not using plastic bags going to do? We look at it as, all right, let's break down environment into five core issues. And that really should help you understand how you can do your best in, in your life. So we say, all right, instead of thinking as environment as, as one kind of large thing, it's food, water, waste, energy and transportation. If you really think about the ways in which you eat, you use water, especially in Southern California when it's our greatest resource, the waste that you produce, how you get around from one place to another, and the energy that you utilize, you've pretty much covered, I'd say, 95% of your impact, either positive or negative, on the environment. So uh, we want to break that down and, and allow for people to understand, like, just look at the ways in which you have an impact in these five core categories and find solutions that apply directly to you. That makes it so easy for me to be even able to grapple with. And I can automatically think of all the different ways that I can maybe look to be more effective in those areas. Now, you take that concept and you have the most incredible education programs. Can you tell us a little bit about those and what their goals are? So we really, as cliche as it sounds, we felt that children are the future, right? They, they're gonna live longer than we are. They're gonna be the ones that are making the policy and building the businesses of the future that are gonna either have these positive or negative impacts on our community. So we knew that we had to start with students, right? And, and that's really been the focal point of our organization, although we do a lot more in terms of the communication strategy and the campaigns and the events. Education is really where we, um, we, we focus primarily. And we also knew, just from personal experience, that maybe lecturing to students about these broad issues was not going to be as effective as allowing for them to, 
develop a, a real interpersonal connection to what they meant. So instead of coming into the classroom and telling students about climate change or deforestation or the Pacific Garbage Patch, we really try to boil down the issues to as individual a level as possible. You know, what does this mean to you as a fifth grader in City Heights instead of what does this mean to us globally? So to that end, we develop programs like the Away Project, which is specifically focused on waste diversion. We wanted to allow for kids to understand what role they play both in consumption and waste production. And in efforts of doing so, really, there's no other way than actually analyzing the waste that they produce. So what we did is we developed a week-long experiment in which we come to the classroom on a Monday and introduce the issue of waste and, and the effect that it has specifically on you know you as a fifth grader in City Heights and your school. And we give each kid a reusable duffel bag and we have them carry it around for the week and place within it any waste they generate. So all of their trash goes into their duffel bag, except stuff like organic waste or something that might be dangerous or unsanitary. And we do allow for them to collect their compost if they'd like. We just say, put it in the jar and keep it in your freezer or in your fridge so that you don't have this smelly uh, compost bag. Um, we, we come back to the school on Friday and we dissect all of the students' trash. And we allow for them to understand exactly where their specific challenge areas lie. So instead of coming into the classroom and saying, all right, everybody uses too many plastic bags. Everybody uses too many plastic bottles. Everyone uses too much X, Y, or Z. We can really actually say, all right, Alex, it looks like you ate 12 bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos in a five-day period. Now, do we think that that is an effective you know, waste production strategy? And, and we won't really necessarily say it in those terms, but we want them to understand exactly what their specific impact has, right? Um, and then we allow for them to build solutions that apply directly to them. So once again, instead of boilerplate solutions to environmental issues, they're all personalized. If you're eating 12 bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos in a week, then we know, okay, maybe we get a bigger bag or maybe we cut down on the Cheeto consumption a little bit. Um, we really try, our educational programmings are much more question-based than they are content-heavy. So instead of telling our students what to do, we just ask them the questions. We'll say, do you think that eating 12 bags of Flaming Hot Cheetos is a healthy decision, right? And, and would there be a way in which you can cut down on some of the waste? Or, you know, something we see that a lot of students do is, is use a ton of paper, right? They're, they're doing one math problem and they're using 30 sheets of paper. So we're talking about, all right, maybe we can write on the back. But really, it's just about asking them the questions. How do you think that you can cut down on, on this consumption? And, and doing so in a way in which would fit within your life. So that's the Away Project, which has generated a ton of interest because instead of having to sit down and learn a bunch of stuff about the average pounds of waste produced per person and then taking a test on it, they really just get to experiment. And, and I think that that's where the most effective learning comes from. Um, we, we do so in a way in which we feel is in line with our organization all the way down to the bottom. So we don't actually produce workbooks or handouts. We operate as a zero waste organization. We think it's, in, it's insane that so many environmental orgs produce so much waste. Um, so even the bags that the students use, they're made out of waste vinyl. We collect banners from printing shops and we repurpose them into bags. So the students get really excited about them because each one of them is different. One might be, you know, formerly a Monster Energy banner. One might be a law firm's, but they all look different. They're different colors, different. So the kids get really excited about them and it's in line with what we wanted to do as an organization. Um, just like that, we provide a variety of different educational programs, all of which are focused on interactive project-based learning. Um, all of our classes are small groups. 
So we get asked quite often to come in and speak to the whole school and, you know, an auditorium. And, and we'll say, really, we prefer to do one class at a time, even though it's much more work on our end. We want to develop as one-to-one as a connection as possible with those students. And that's really where the learning happens is when you're able to actually connect. To your earlier point with me and all my Cheetos, my flaming hot Cheeto bags. So on Friday with the away program, when you go in and you go through those bags and you see all of those students and all of their plastic trash and obviously their Cheeto addictions, what are their reactions? Can you actually see the learning happen? Can you, tell, can you just dive into those moments and share those with us? That's really what makes the work worthwhile. Um, you can. You can absolutely see it. And it's fascinating. We do this program with middle and high school. And I don't know when the last time you spoke to a middle school or high schooler is, but they think nothing is cool. Like, they're not allowed to like anything at all. And it's amazing to go into the classroom and see them be so actively engaged with, you know, dissecting a bag of trash which is probably the least cool thing you can do. But the fact that they've invested in it for a week and all of them have a bag, so it's kind of like this team effort, they're so engaged. It's phenomenal. And really, I think the greatest, uh, the greatest reactions that we have are the students that are, are just quiet, right? And haven't really been actively participating throughout the week. We also have uh, a web app that the students work through every day where Monday they log in and it asks them a set of questions, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And at the end, it produces a customized report for them as to how much trash they produce and what their main collected items were. We see some of these students that weren't so actively engaged in the classroom being really enthusiastic through the web app and filling out, you know, we ask them what they feel they learned, if, if they feel like they're gonna make any changes, and if so, what? And we're seeing them write paragraphs upon paragraphs about, I'd never thought about this before. It never occurred to me how much waste I produce. It never occurred to me how much waste my family produces. And they'll say stuff like, I can really see how, you know, for me, just as an individual, it doesn't seem like that big of an issue, but then when we look at our whole classrooms trash, or our whole schools, or our whole cities, they really, really make that connection. So the really beautiful thing is, when we personalize this educational model, it allows for students to connect the dots on their own. So instead of us coming in and saying, the city of San Diego produces X amount of pounds of waste per day, we let them get there. And, and we've learned, and it's, it's obvious, when you let people come to their own conclusions, they feel so much stronger about it. And, and that's really been the effect of, of the Away Project specifically. We get letters from students telling us, I'd never thought about this before. My favorite is when we get letters from parents saying, well, great, now we can't use plastic bottles. And, and they're saying so tongue-in-cheek, but it's, it's great. What, definitely one of the objectives of our educational programs was creating um, students that can go home and make an impact in, in their household and in their community. So when, when we get those letters, that's really the, the greatest indicator that the program is successful. To even further drive that, is there one memorable instance with either like a student that was reluctant and just came alive or a student that was just cracking you up the whole time. Anything that you can share with us? So we, we had a student recently, a high school student from Southeast San Diego, write a full blog about her experience of working through the process. And she wrote a different entry Monday through Friday. And this was completely unprompted. This was just on her own. She thought that it was an interesting process and wanted to work through the, the process of um, kind of writing out day by day how she felt. 
And it was interesting because she was really critical. You know, Monday, week one, it was like, I don't really feel like I want to do this and carrying my trash sounds like a hassle and it's going to be a pain. I'm not even going to produce that much trash to begin with. And Friday, it was night and day. It was, you know, my eyes have been open. I want to work in the environmental field. Uh, you know, I, I want to go toward the landfill. So th- those are the instances in which we feel, I mean, we're really touching the students in a, in a deep manner. Next, I want to transition to another just crazy project that you guys got coming up called Stacked. And you actually came in this morning and told me that you purchased a double-decker bus. What does that have to do with anything that we've talked about? Yeah, you don't get to say you've purchased a double-decker bus very often in your life. Um, we have never been shy about innovation at one-to-one movement. We feel as if we need to continue to push the envelope and try new things, right? We're not going to solve these problems by the same level of thinking that we've been using for the past 20, 30 years. So we have always tried new things, which is challenging in the nonprofit sector, which is traditionally incredibly risk averse. Um, People are scared of mismanaging funds and with right reason, but we still need to continue to try these things. I look at, to me, I'm incredibly inspired by tech startup. Really, if you ask me, like, who are your heroes right now? None of them are a nonprofit. All of them are like the founders of Y Combinator and Airbnb and Dropbox. And to me, that that's where real innovation is happening. And really, it's happening on things that don't actually even matter. Like, if I get my meal three minutes quicker, it really affects my life in no way. But there are these people that are working so hard to actually make that happen. They're willing to try any new methods of doing so. So when we thought about food systems, which has been at the core of our organizational programming from the get-go. Food has always been this really important um, issue that we have focused on. And and we currently teach 15 different advanced permacultural classes like edible landscape and backyard chickens and permaculture design. But the work that we do in the classroom, we've always seen this disconnect to food. We've built school gardens before and come into classrooms and worked with cafeterias on incorporating these foods, but we still haven't really seen the needle move on the adoption of of the actual healthy diets, right? You can get as many healthy, local, natural, organic foods as you want in a cafeteria, but if the students are throwing them away, it makes no difference. So we said, how do we get kids excited about food? That's really the, the question that started this whole conversation. How do we get them excited about food? And we kicked around a variety of different methods as to how you do so. You know, and one of the ones that we got really excited about is, well, maybe we can take kids to a farm, right? Let's take them to a farm and and let them get their hands in the dirt. And we started looking at some of the logistics as to how you do so. And it's actually much more challenging than you can think. And that's even in San Diego. We have the most independently owned farms in the country in San Diego. There's over 4,000 family owned farms in San Diego. So there are a lot of farms that you could take students to. It just happens to be that most of them are a little bit further away from most of the urban school districts. So when you're looking at how do you get students to a farm, you have to get transportation. And nowadays, schools don't have their own buses. They contract out their their field trip buses. So at the beginning of the year, they're saying, all right, we're going to go to the courthouse. We're going to go to Balboa Park. And uh, they don't often have farm highly listed on that priority. So... That was challenging, you know, especially if a school has 2,000 students plus scheduling the transportation necessary in order to get them to a farm, we found to be not the solution. So we're thinking, all right, well, if we can't take the students to the farm, why don't we just bring the farm to the students? And, and that's really where the idea came from. Um, we looked at a bunch of different ways in which you can do so. Is it a box truck or a flatbed or just a truck and then you're using the, the bed of it? 
And we, we got a little bit excited about using a school bus because it makes a lot of sense, right? You take a former school bus and you turn that into a farm. And then just my ambitious mind, I'm always trying to push a little further. I said, well, why not use a double-decker bus? When you're looking at logistics, it's literally twice as much space, so why not? And we started looking at, okay, well, let's look at how do you build a greenhouse and a double-decker, and then what can you do with all that extra space? Because originally it was just, let's build a greenhouse and a bus and farm and take it to students. But now we had double the amount of space. So what else can we do? And, and that's where the idea began to grow. And, and it's all been so through collaborative conversations, both internally with our staff and our board and our interns and externally looking at, you know, let's talk to the school district. Let's talk to local farms and other nonprofits and see where that need is. So we're still very young in that process. But we bought our bus yesterday, double-decker bus. That was really one of the challenges is, okay, well, where do you actually get a double-decker bus? It happens to be they're all British. Um, and interestingly enough, there is one importer of double-decker buses in the United States. They bring them over here from the UK and then they sell them usually as tour buses. And some people are starting to do food trucks in them, which I think is exciting. But that importer of double-decker buses is in San Diego. So <laughs> when we first thought to ourselves, all right, we're going to find a bus and we're probably going to have to go and travel somewhere and bring it back here. And we got online and we found, oh, they're actually in Del Mar. So that same day we drove up and met with Fred and checked out buses and got really excited about the program. And really the, the last few months, this is still a pretty new process. The last few months have been a process of envisioning what is the programming going to look like? What partnerships do we need to build out? Right? What do we want to bring to the students? Logistically, that's one of the, the hugest things. Like how do you actually build a greenhouse and a bus and what do we do with this space? And that's what we've been working on. So yesterday we actually got our bus and we ripped all the seats out. So right now it's just a shell. And this weekend we'll be at an event, a sustainable food focused event. And we're actually allowing for community members to help us envision what it could actually look like. So we'll have uh, the backs of vinyl banners hung up all throughout the inside of the bus so people can draw out what they would like to see on there. Um, so we, we try to really incorporate as many voices as possible in what we do. And uh, we, we want to hear what the community has to offer. We want to hear from students what they would get excited about. And, and, and the rest is, you know, it's an experiment. Nobody's ever done this before. So we're figuring it out as we go. So semi-unrelated question. Did you get to drive the bus? I, I hope I don't have to very often. I did drive the bus. What was it like? It's terrifying. Um, the bus is 14 feet tall. So the width and the length are actually not the hardest part. I mean, 32 feet long is much longer than my Honda Fit. But the scary part is feeling like you're going to tip over uh, at all times. Which, which is not the case. Obviously, these things are built for city use and, and they, they go fast and... and you know, they're, they're versatile, but um, it's scary. It definitely takes some time. Obviously, once we actually start getting into the schools, we'll have a bus driver and someone that knows what they're actually doing. Well, I'm really excited to see that vision come to life because some of the just ideas that you were throwing out on the website, which I'll definitely include in the show notes, were just really cool. And even on your funding site, people were saying, like, let's have grass down the walls and do all this stuff. So... I'm very excited to see that come to life. Yeah, like I said, we're really trying to listen to as many voices as possible and, and be ambitious. You know, part of the one-to-one -one model is to throw things at the wall and see if they stick and not be scared to fail. 
and not be scared to pivot, right? And say, this didn't work. How can we use this experience as a learning model and, and be able to, to make change that is gonna be effective? Before jumping into the rapid fire, a quick resource and tool for you as you grow your business. One of the most challenging things out there can be around branding and marketing and really telling your story in a way that resonates with customers. To help, we've built a comprehensive ideal customer worksheet to help you walk through all the different steps in identifying your customer. Download your free copy at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash branding. Hang out with us there and you're also going to find information about a brand new branding guide for young businesses, all giving you the tools to make that positive impact in your business. And now for that rapid fire. So life is a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion you've gone on? So one of the great things about being, well, it's a pro and a con, right, of being the executive director and founder of the organization is I can make my own schedule, which ultimately means I end up working much more than not, but I can also take vacations and a little bit of time off or try to work from somewhere else. And I try to do so whenever I can. Um, This year, my girlfriend and I went out to the East Coast and did a little tour through the Northeast, New York, DC, Virginia. Um, We're both vegans, and as with many vegans you'll meet, eating is our favorite thing in the whole world. So it was pretty much just a food tour. We pretty much went to every vegan restaurant in New York, DC, and Virginia. And, And that's what makes us happiest, I think, is to find amazing food in other parts of the world. But uh, we're going to uh, Mexico, down to Playa del Carmen and Tulum in November. And and we try to really have that work-life balance you mentioned. On that trip, what was your favorite meal or restaurant that you hit? Well, my favorite restaurant in the world is in D.C. And I I lived out there. I worked in D.C. for a few years. And um, they have a soul food vegan restaurant right across the street from Howard University. You know, it's it's definitely part of the community. It's phenomenal. It's my favorite place in the world. It's called Woodlands Vegan Bistro. Um, although I think they might have recently changed their name to New Vegan, and it used to be Everlasting, Everlasting Life Cafe. So they've gone through a lot of names, but the recipes have never changed. The food is phenomenal. I would highly recommend anyone to visit Woodlands Vegan Bistro, New Vegan, Everlasting Life Cafe, whatever it is in, in D.C. It's, it's fantastic. We'll just have a sign that has all three. Yeah. <laughs> What has been one of the most memorable trips or excursions that you've ever gone on? I've been really fortunate to get to work in a wide variety of different countries and regions. Um, I've been in Costa Rica. I've I worked in Hawaii. My first job coming out of college was in Hawaii. But recently, a few years ago, I was invited on a service trip to Haiti. And it, it was a phenomenal experience. It was incredibly challenging. Um, Haiti, as you know, had a significant earthquake, which really demolished the whole country and has since really had a hard time rebuilding. And it's just been one issue after another. After the earthquake, they had a lack of access to clean water and had huge cholera pandemics. And it's it's been a, a significant challenge, uh, to say the least, to rebuild Haiti. Um, it was interesting for me because my family's from Mexico. My parents are from Mexico City, and I grew up going to Mexico once or twice a year and feeling coming from San Diego and especially as a kid that it was definitely a more impoverished country and, and community and I to me it was different because I lived in San Diego and you know especially as a child not having a really deep understanding as to uh, socioeconomic you know, uh, mobilization 
I saw San Diego as clean and Mexico as dirty was pretty much my interpretation. But then now spending time in Haiti and, and seeing the challenges that they deal with there and in relation to Mexico, Mexico seems like a phenomenally industrialized country which a, with a huge amount of opportunity and job growth and natural resources and industry. And Haiti has none of that. There, there is nothing in Haiti. They've been ravaged since you know, pre-colonial times in, in which they cut down all of their trees for coffee production and, and their environmental degradation started five, six hundred years ago, you know, whereas ours started with the Industrial Revolution. So it was the most impactful trip that I have ever been on. Um, I, looking at everything now environmentally and, and looking at the problems that they have out there, it's a huge issue to address in terms of waste uh, waste management. You know, right now there's no waste management infrastructure, so all the trash goes into riverbeds in terms of air quality and, and groundwater retention and local foods. It's, it's a huge problem. Definitely. I know I did a trip to the Dominican Republic when uh, I was in college and we were there studying a lot of the social issues. So to the Dominican Republic, the school actually decided that we weren't allowed to visit Haiti because of some of the challenges in Haiti. So the school authorized us to go to the Dominican Republic. But very interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that. Many social entrepreneurs find solace and tranquility in the outdoors. Have you found this to be true in your work? We try to get as uh, outdoors as often as possible. Um, as a team, personally, myself, with my family and with my girlfriend, um, my appreciation for the outdoors really stems in being by water. I, I love, you know, hopping in rivers or lakes or the ocean, um, even in pools, wherever I can get wet. I think obviously it's a function of being from San Diego. Um, I also, my, my deep appreciation in just being outside, out of my home, out of my office, comes in playing sports. Uh, as a collegiate athlete, I, I still try to be as outdoors as often as possible. Um, I have a little bit less time now, but it's, it's where I try to get to spend my free time. So whether it's in the water or jumping in the river or playing sports, what is one must-have item that you always have to have with you? Uh, frisbee. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I just mentioned I was a collegiate athlete. Uh, I played ultimate frisbee, which is about as unserious a sport as you can imagine. There, nobody's ever been impressed by someone telling them that they played ultimate frisbee. But it was actually a very intensive you know, practice three days a week, track practice, tournaments nationally, um, a lot of dedication and time. What I most love about playing ultimate frisbee is that it's, since nobody takes the sport seriously, it's not like telling someone you play baseball or football or basketball. You only play it if you love it. Right? And, and there is no scholarships and endorsement deals. You just go out there and you, you train hard and you play hard because of your team and because of how much you enjoy being out there and, and being competitive. So uh, I try to keep a Frisbee on me wherever it is I go. And I found having traveled through Haiti, um, having traveled last year through India, there is no more fun activity than throwing a Frisbee with a kid who's either never thrown a Frisbee before or is just amazed by the fact that this little piece of plastic can fly. Um, it's fantastic. Collegiate ultimate frisbee. I didn't. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Can you describe a time that you were able to have boots on the ground and really see the impact of your work come to life? So, in, in education, education is a really fascinating programmatic function because you don't always see the direct results. Right? When you go into a classroom, even if you're working with something as interactive as the Away Project in which the students are literally collecting all of their trash, 
you don't know if that student is going to stop using plastic bags or bottles the next day or the next year. And, and for us, it's, it's a constant reminder as to the fact that we need to remain optimistic and enthusiastic about our work, even though we don't always see those direct results. We decided a long time ago that one-to-one -one movement programming was all going to be proactive. It's all going to be focused on addressing the problems and developing solutions. Instead of organizations that work primarily on reactive programs, I guess the best example there would be a beach cleanup. I think beach cleanups are great, but ultimately the solution to single-use plastic waste in our oceans are not beach cleanups. It's just not producing the trash in the first place. So the work that we do, it may not have that immediate reward, right? that satisfaction, instant gratification, that just picking up X amount of pieces of trash on the beach might, but we know ultimately is going to work more towards developing the long-term solutions. Both founding and now as the executive director of One to One Movement, what is your favorite mistake that you've made? I don't think I have just one. We, we make mistakes every day. Um, I think my, my favorite thing is being able to learn from those mistakes. We never wanted to be an organization that did things just because it's the way we'd always done them before. You know, we want to be able to learn from those mistakes and make changes and, and pivoting, right? And, and that's, once again, something that I've always taken from tech startup, right? A lot of nonprofits just do what they do because it's what they've always done. Um, to me, that's not particularly effective. I think we have to look at how we can always continue to improve. We're a, a very motivated and ambitious organization. So can you share one of the specific moments that drive home that, oops, this is what we did, and now we're pivoting? <laughs> well, yeah, I, from the, the beginning of the organization, we did try to focus on educational programming that was broad in nature. Just We, we did an intro to sustainability class, and, and we did so in a way in which we thought was fun and interactive. We, had, um, we broke the students up into groups of five food, water, waste, energy, transportation, and we had them debate as to which one was the most important. Obviously, the end answer is that no one is more important and they're all overlapped with one another. But that being said, we did learn fairly quickly that coming in with a broad level of educational programming was not as effective as, as kind of getting deep down into one specific issue. So we, we begun to develop programming that only focused on individual issues. What book do you recommend to people who are either wanting to learn more about this issue or just are socially minded in general? So I'm not a big like, self-help guy. Um, I think that there are really excellent nonfiction works uh, anywhere from um, Jonathan Saffron Four's Eating Animals, which does seem to sound like it's only animal related, but the, the issue of animal agriculture is almost more deeply tied with sustainability than any other, right? Even waste aversion, right? It, so that to me, I think is really important, but I look for me, my greatest inspiration in literature is The Little Prince, which <laughs> sounds hilarious because it's seen as a children's book, but I really think it isn't. It, to me, it's one of the most touching works on just personal sensitivity and compassion that I, I get to revisit as often as possible. I like that it was playful. <laughs> I'll have to reread that one. What advice do you have for recent grads who are looking for meaningful careers? So uh, I say two things usually to recent grads, and they reach out to me quite often, which I think is great. Um, one is to seek as many 
informational interviews as possible. So getting your foot in the door as a recent college grad is, is pretty tough, but playing off of uh, leaders' ego, I think is a really phenomenal way to do so. So if you can reach out to someone and say, hey, you've done really phenomenal stuff. You're super inspiring. Can I just learn about your story? Most people will say yes, because everyone's favorite topic is themselves. So get out there and ask people that you think are effective at what they're doing if you can talk to them for 20, 30 minutes, if you can buy them a coffee or a beer and just chat with them about their life. Um, But then I would say more than anything else, just do something, like do anything. It's being a college grad, and I know I was there myself, can be paralyzing because you're looking at all of these options. Do I want to work for a nonprofit? Do I want to work for a for-profit? Do I want to work in conservation or in community health or food systems or water issues? And there's just so much. And obviously, everyone cares about a wide variety of issues. You know, I worked at organizations which weren't primarily focused on the main specific cause that I care most about, but I saw a lot of overlap with the things that I do really embody. So I would say just go do something. Instead of being concerned about finding that perfect job, just find a job, right? And, and generate that experience and then be able to leverage that into what it is you do want to do. Um, the job market is tough. It's, it's hard to find opportunities. And especially in social causes, when we're seeing a great deal of recent college grads are, are very motivated to work towards some positive social good. So I, I would say even if you, you know you want to work in environment and you're just not able to find that position that speaks most to you, but you do see one in a parallel field, even if it's you know, education, if it's homelessness, whatever it may be, try that and then leverage the skills that you build there to be able to, to find that position that you most actually want. What role has mentorship played in your life? So I've been very fortunate to have a variety of mentors. Um, I, I grew up with two older sisters who are both incredibly committed and passionate and compassionate to various different causes and remain so. And being able to look up to them as well as my parents who always fostered a sense of sensitivity and appreciation for community, I would say that that's been the greatest mentorship that I can build off of. Um, Not the traditional professional mentor, but uh, coming from a very tight-knit family, that's been that's been the source of inspiration and guidance that I felt that I I really grew from. Um, On top of that, I now, in this role as ED at One to One Movement, get to look at some of the organizations that I'm most inspired by and reach out to them for for guidance. Um, Specifically, let's say the one I most currently communicate with would be a nonprofit based in San Juan Capistrano in South Orange County called the Ecology Center, which I think really does things right. They're about, I think, eight years old now. We're four, so a little bit older than we are, and, and really that guiding light for how to incorporate brand and messaging into the environmental conversation, which, as I mentioned, I think is the most important thing. So if you were to give our listener one to two pieces of, of advice, to really drive home the sustainable issue in their lives today, what would that be? I'd say it has to start with you, right? There's no one answer. Being sustainable as a 15-year-old high school student in San Diego and being sustainable as a business person in New York or a grandparent in Florida, like none of those are the same. 
So I would say really find your way to change the world. Um, find your way to be sustainable. Find ways that fit within your life. Find ways which enrich and enhance your life and allow for you to connect deeper into the things that you care about. I'd say really the, the way to be sustainable is to build a personal relationship with sustainability. Is there a mantra or a motto that you use to drive forward your work with one-to-one -one movement? Without a doubt, my mantra, my personal professional mantra is to be relentlessly resourceful. Everything that we have as an organization is a function of resourcefulness. It's figuring out how can we make something ambitious and big happen with what we have at our disposal, which, you know, we're a nonprofit. Usually it's not very much, but by doing so, we've been able to accomplish really great feats. We host a thousand plus person film festival that's really focused on production value and engagement. And it's a beautiful event and we get our space donated. We get our food, our beer donated. So we find ways in which we can accomplish our objectives by developing resourceful solutions. And to me, that really speaks once again to, to the tech world. And, and that quote itself is from Paul Graham, one of the founders of Y Combinator, who you know, developed Dropbox and Airbnb and Reddit. You know, they're always seeking ways in which they can be relentlessly resourceful. And I want to bring that to the nonprofit space. That's definitely something that both myself and our listener can apply to our daily lives. So thank you so much for sharing everything today, Jonathan. This has been incredible. I have so many takeaways that I want to move forward with, including um, really upping the number of reusable bags that I have in my house. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up another inspiring session of the Positive Impact Podcast. I hope you're inspired to find innovative ways to reduce waste and cut electricity use from your life. To help get started, we've got some tips and resources on our show notes page, positiveimpactpodcast.com slash show. And yes, we will have photos of that incredible double-decker bus for you to check out, even as it was lit up for one-to-one -one movements volunteer appreciation party overall incredible hang out with us at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash goodreads and get a free audio download thanks to audible for one of the many different books that our guests have recommended i don't know whether or not they have the prints on it but i know that there's a great lineup of books for you there until next time keep doing your part to make the world a better place <laughs>